Greetings and welcome to another installment in our series studying the book of Isaiah. The series is called Come Let Us Reason Together and the today's sermon is called Emmanuel. And as you might have guessed, we're having a Christmas theme here. Uh, that's the time of year at which this is being recorded and it happens to coincide with our study of Isaiah and a very famous passage that is quoted in the New Testament. Matter of fact, the New Testament is where we're going to begin today. We'll be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. And we're going to talk about the concept of Emmanuel, which means God with us. What that means in a New Testament. But then we're going to trace it back to its roots, as we always should. Whenever the New Testament brings up something about the Old Testament or quotes from it, it is an invitation for us to join the author there in what he is thinking and what he's being inspired by the Spirit to write. So as Matthew refers back to this verse, so too we shall go back to this part in Isaiah. We shall study the context to see how we understand it, and we will learn even more about who this Lord Jesus Christ is and what it means to follow him and what it means that God is God with us in the world even to this day. So we'll begin by taking a look at Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 and I'll put you there in the scriptures and here's what it says. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, let's begin appropriately with a word of prayer together. Father God, we thank you so much for putting us together, even in this format. Uh, we are separated by time, we are separated by place, but we are united in that as we examine the word of God, it is the Holy Spirit that is active to give us understanding and to help us have insight and to draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray this day for all those things to take place at the reading of your word and at the exposition of it. Please work past the weaknesses of the messenger and the hearer to make yourself known and bring yourself glory. We thank you, Lord, for this great message in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we have here is just a profound testimony to the Word of God, how some 700 years before the prophet Isaiah penned these words that we see quoted here in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 1. Now in the New Testament sense, let's go to our outline here and see what this means. And I've rearranged things a little bit, so it might take me a moment or two sometimes to catch up to what we're talking about. 
But we want to talk about what Emmanuel means to us in the New Testament. That is, what traditionally have Christians recognized this to be saying to us in Matthew chapter 1? And in the context of the uh, Gospel of Matthew and the Gospels in general, what does it mean that Jesus is God with us, that he is Emmanuel? Because it's obviously not his proper name. His proper name given by God was Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. But this Emmanuel means God with us. And it's another thing that he is called. He has many titles and many names in the Bible. And yet it's all very clearly Jesus of Nazareth, the only true son of God that came and became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, what does it mean? It means that he, that the preexistent God took on flesh. The Holy Spirit conceived in Mary with her genetics, in her body, physically connected to her, drawing from her being for the flesh, occupied, her womb was occupied then by the second member of the Godhead, the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is, of course, his first coming. He entered in the human condition as one of us, never ceasing to be fully God. However, he laid aside some of those privileges and grew as we do and learned as we do, was tempted as we are tempted. And yet he did not sin as we sin. Even when they made attempts to take him before his time, he did not fight, but he went, uh, he, he went away. He withdrew from the situation. This is accounted in Matthew chapter 12, verses 19 and 20, which is also quoting from Isaiah. Look what it says there. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Well, Matthew there is quoting from Isaiah chapter 42. So Matthew quotes a number of times from the book of Isaiah to explain Jesus Christ to us. And here we have Isaiah 42, that though he is God in the flesh, though he is the son of God and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him after the cross, here he comes. He's not even going to break a bruised reed. He's not going to quench a smoldering wick. In other words, he's going to be gentle. However, he plainly presents himself as being equal with God. And if that were not true, it would be a crime to even claim that in the Jewish community per the law of God. It would be worthy of a death sentence, which is why he was ultimately crucified by the leadership. Their justification was that he made himself to be equal with God. And if that's not true, that's blasphemy. Well, he gave himself over to the authorities. He gave no defense at his trials, and he laid down his life as an offering for sin. Now, this is what we have in mind at Christmas, and this is what is right and proper to have in mind at Christmas. This babe in the manger, God in the flesh, having come from the most high heaven with all the glory and power and majesty that is there, taking his place at the back of the line of humanity, so to speak. He wasn't born to royalty. He wasn't born into wealth or privilege, but he was born and laid in a manger, an animal food trough. And he was born to two relatively unknown people from a small village in a conquered nation that in the first century was the equivalent of the backwoods 
of the world. But more than that, Emmanuel teaches us that this new covenant that he came to enact brings God closer than ever as the work of Jesus Christ enables his people to be indwelt by the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And these spirit-filled people will gather together as the church, that is the body of Christ, his very presence together with them and yet in the world. And so this threefold summary of what we have here, the significance in Jesus coming as Emmanuel, God with us, is he came to dwell in human flesh and he forever dwells in his people by his spirit and he forever dwells among his people as they gather together and serve him and continue his ministry. And this is what we should understand when we hear the name Emmanuel. But Matthew pointed to a verse in Isaiah, and he pointed to that verse for a reason. He was directing our attention there to the whole purpose and meaning of the passage, not just to pull some words that work for him that justify what he's saying, but to actually point us back to a passage that itself has entire significance through and through. And indeed, that's what he does. So what we're going to do is we are going to go to Isaiah and understand what Emmanuel meant there in the Old Testament context, there in the book of Isaiah. What did it mean? Well, before we get to the details, we need a little bit of background. And what we're going to see is very important. Chapters 1 to 37 in the book of Isaiah have their focal point as the Assyrian invasion of Judah that happened in the early 700s BC and the conquering of everything in Judah except the city of Jerusalem. And this all came to a head about 701 BC. Chapters 38 to 66, however, focus on the next threat. Over a hundred years in the future from the time it was inspired in Isaiah, the, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire would come and they would defeat Judah and they would defeat Jerusalem and they would destroy Jerusalem and take the people into exile, all because of their broken covenant with God. But Isaiah speaks very much about an imminent return of the people to the promised land, about a restoration of the people of Israel and a renewed and improved Jerusalem, or Zion as it's often called in the book, that they would be returned. And it would happen under the ruling of a servant king, which we know as Jesus Christ. So the book indeed has much to say about Jesus Christ, who would be overseeing who would be the ruler of the new Israel, Jews and Gentiles, saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ through all the ages. But much more about that will be in the coming series, but we want to look at right now Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, let's take a look at that. Here's where he's quoting from as we see the verse itself. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And yes, the word virgin there means virgin. It means a woman before the age of or before she is married. And according to God's law, that ought to be a virgin. And so it is clearly interpreted as a woman who has not yet been 
with a man. And yet the interpretation of it could simply be a virgin conceiving and bearing a son in the usual kind of way. In other words, she was a virgin, but then there's the assumption from the statement, well, she obviously got married and they did what was necessary to conceive and bear a son. So she would no longer be a virgin and then call his name Emmanuel. So it's got a twofold interpretation that the New Testament uh, sends us back with this idea, yeah, this applies to Jesus, but in a very special way. And yet what we find here in the context is this would have a plain understanding. Uh, let me give you the context of Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8. Rezin, the king of Syria, and here we're going to go to uh, something here that we will find profoundly helpful, uh, is a map. And let me take you over here and take a look at this. If you look at the map on the uh, right side of the screen there, what you're going to see is up in the north there is Syria, and its king is Rezin. And then what you see just south of that and, and a little west is the nation of Israel, as it's called in the Old Testament, or Ephraim. This is the northern kingdom. Recall that the kingdom had split after Solomon into Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, sometimes the northern kingdom is also called Ephraim. So keep that in mind. Don't let it trip you up. The king there is Pekah. And Rezin and Pekah were conspiring together to... Uh, attack Judah, and they did, and they defeated much of Judah, but they did not defeat the city of Jerusalem. Ahaz and the city, of course, are very afraid of what's going on, but Isaiah's message from God, as we'll see here in chapter 7, is one of encouragement that he will stop the attack, and hence we get the idea, God with us. So you have Rezin and Pekah conspiring together to attack the southern kingdom, but then another is going to enter into this, Assyria. Now we'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's get to the text and see what we have here. Chapter 7, here's what it says. Um, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, Shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Samaria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is a son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so the basic message here is good news. Rezin and Pekah are going to fail. Their lands will become desolate. They will be shattered from being a people. 
And so this is important to understand. This is the good news. Now the Lord's going to ask or tell Ahaz to give him a sign. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as the heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So he asked, the Lord tells him to ask for a sign. Now, it is true the Bible clearly says you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. Indeed, you shouldn't put God to the test unless he tells you to ask him for a sign and then you do what he plainly has told you to do. And here, being prideful, being ignorant of God, we don't know why Ahaz does this, but he refuses to ask for a sign. And I think he, he thinks he's being pious by doing this, but if he knows anything about God, it's all about obedience first. Piety can wait. You know, if he has asked you to do something that would be normally against your piety, but he's clearly asked you to do it, you do it. And you don't ask questions about it. So he fails in this. Ahaz fails in this. And God is not happy about it. Um, and so let's read on. Verses 13 through 17. Now we have good news and bad news. It says here in verse 13. And he said, this is the Lord speaking. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men? That you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the Lord is bringing the king of Assyria upon them. And in verse 15, Emmanuel is mentioned here. Emmanuel is going to grow uh, to a point that he's going to be 12 or 13 years of old when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. To this day, the Jews have something, a coming of age ceremony for young men, young Jewish men. And at 12 years old, they are given a bar mitzvah. And this is important for us to understand. That's the age we're talking about here. Well, when he reaches that age, he's going to be eating curds and honey. What in the world does that mean? We are so removed from this context, we need it explained to us. And indeed, it is explained later on in the passage. So we'll not go into too much detail, but basically it's this. In those days when your land had been attacked, when an invading army came through, it trampled everything down. They ate the crops that were there for themselves. They burned everything else. And so you're going to be without grain for bread. You're going to be without vegetables. You're going to be without fruit because you and your people, you have all fled inside the walled city. And all you've been able to do is take the grazing animals in with you and whatever you can scavenge on the way. And when that army leaves, if you survive the siege, when you go out, you find the land is desolate and all you're going to have to eat is the produce of those grazing animals because there'll still be briars and thorns and stuff for them to graze on. And there will be wild honey that you will find here and there. The fact that he's eating curds and honey means that that is bad news, that they have been conquered, that they have been attacked. Now they have survived it because they're eating but they are in a bad way. 
And so someone, according to this, this passage here, according to the sign that God gives them, he says, I'm going to give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Someone, a wife or concubine of Ahaz, perhaps, or someone else in family, is going to become pregnant. They're going to bear a son. And by the time the son is 12 years old, that there will be no more threat from Syria and Israel. But Israel is going to be in a bad way because of what comes in verse 17, the king of Assyria. And so you do the math. This was given to Ahaz around 735. And we know that they were attacked by the Assyrians and the Assyrians laid siege to Jerusalem in about 722. Yeah, that's about a 12-year-old child and nine months of, of pregnancy. So at first glance, Emmanuel means good news that God is with Judah to protect them from Syria and Israel. But it also means that God is with them to correct them. He was bringing the king of Assyria to bring discipline upon his people. This was the terms of the covenant. This is what Israel agreed to when they came into the promised land. God made it clear. If you go in there, and you can find this in Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30, says, when you go in there, if you live right, if you follow me, things will be good. You'll have crops. You'll have big families. You'll have protection from your enemies. Everything will be wonderful. But if you do not obey me and you turn to other gods and, and things of that nature and you disobey me and you do injustice in your land, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to send invading armies upon you and I'm going to send famines upon you and plagues and difficulties. And so this is very clearly the terms of the covenant. God is simply doing what he said he would do according to the terms that Israel agreed to. So it is for the purpose of God that Assyria is coming. And indeed, therefore, this is God with us from their perspective. This is God. They looked out from the walls and they looked at the destruction of their land. They looked inside the walls and saw their people having nothing to eat but curds and maybe some honey that they found. And they say, oh, this is God with us. This is God with us because of what we have done. And this should be the message that they were getting from Isaiah as these things unfolded in these years after these prophecies were given. Now, this is fascinating because in, in verses 18 through 24, he describes in more detail this disaster. But it's important for us to know God's not done talking about Emmanuel here in chapter 7. He mentions the name Emmanuel two more times in chapter 8. There's much more to say on this. And this is described in the end of chapter 7 here, this encounter with Assyria as a very close shave. We'll look at verse 18 and just for a moment here. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. You notice on the map here, what do we have? You see the arrow over to the right, way out there to the northeast, more east than north, is Assyria. They're way over there. They're on the other side of the river Euphrates, and you'll hear the river mentioned here shortly. But they're way over there on the other side of the river. He is whistling for them as someone would whistle for an obedient animal to come and to judge his people. So despite the Lord's message to Judah and to Syria, uh, uh, that Syria and Ephraim would not succeed, Judah reached out to Assyria. 
See, what happens in the interim here is Ahaz not only doesn't ask for a sign, you know, he says, yeah, the Lord said we're going to be good, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send emissaries over to Assyria to try to make a deal with Assyria to protect us from Syria and Israel. Now, does that make sense? Take a look at this here. Uh, back at the map here, Judah in the south there is going to send emissaries beyond Israel and Syria to Assyria and basically say, look, you're on that side of them. We're on this side of them. Let's make a pact. You attack them and protect us from them. And Assyria, of course, they're liars and they go, oh yeah, we'll take care of you. We'll do that. And they do come and they attack Syria and Ephraim, but then they continue their attack and go ahead and attack Judah too. So this comes to nothing, all this plotting and planning and politics that they're playing. They're trusting in the world. But let's go to verse eight or chapter 8 because God has more to say about this issue. When we come to chapter 8, there's yet another birth announcement. And I want you to take a look at this. Uh, we'll, we'll split the screen here with it. Uh, this time to Isaiah's wife, apparently a prophetess, and he was to be named Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Let's take a look at these verses here, beginning in chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get a reliable witness, or I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, for the, before the boy knows how to cry my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So you see very clearly the prophecy there. The prophecy there is simply this, that before this boy's old enough to speak, Isaiah's son with the crazy name, that, As that Samaria and Assyria will be defeated. So he's giving yet another sign, this one personally to Isaiah himself. Now, never mind this boy's unfortunate name. I wonder what they called him in school. Did they shorten it to Baz? Did they call him mayor? Did they, did they have to say the whole thing? I don't know. Can you imagine his mother getting hoarse, calling him in for dinner? It's, it's kind of an amazing name, but this is what it means to be a prophet. Sometimes he's going to ask you to do some pretty strange things. And this young man grows up with this name to remind the nation Israel to be there in the midst of them as a sign. This is what the Lord said would happen, that the spoil will, will speed and the prey will hasten. But let's go on. There's more here. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river mighty and many, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together. 
but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. That's the word Emmanuel again. In verse 6 back here, it mentions the waters of Shiloh. Remember, this is where uh, Isaiah and Ahaz met when Isaiah said, here's the word of the Lord. You're not going to have to worry about those two. It's going to be defeated. Now ask for a sign. And Ahaz refused to ask for a sign. He refused the waters of Shiloh. He refused to do it God's way. And so he refused the waters of God. Now he's going to get the waters of the river. Okay? He's referring to the river Euphrates, but he's really referring poetically to Assyria. Mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. It's like a river, and often in the prophets, an, an invading army is described as a river. And this makes sense in the context, because the context in chapter 7 describes them eating curds and honey. It describes then the destruction. If you've ever seen, uh, we here were broadcasting from near the Ohio River, and occasionally that thing floods, occasionally it overflows its banks, and what's left after it recedes is a waste. All the crops are destroyed. Everything's kind of rearranged. There's still plant life. The plants will survive it, but it's usually not the plants you want. And the same is true when an invading army comes through. The place is going to be a wasteland. The crops are going to be ruined. The vineyards are going to be torn asunder. And they're going to be taken over with all the weeds that will survive such a thing. And so this very vivid description of the river of the army coming like a river in flood, something unstoppable, something devastating, and it's going to surround them right up to the neck, he says. And what he means by that is the entire land of Judah is going to be defeated by Assyria, except for the walled, the one walled city left, Jerusalem. So you see how it is? They're filled up to the neck in Assyrians. And all that's left is this little city, the capital city, the city of the king of David, Ahaz. Boy, this is tough. And this is a turbulent time that God introduces himself as Emmanuel. And this is a promise that they will survive, but it's a promise that there'll also be great difficulty. As it says in verse 8. And this is an exclamation at the end of verse 8 where he says, Oh, Emmanuel. Now, here's a little Hebrew lesson. I'm going to tell you, do you know what the word O oh means in Hebrew? It means, Oh. It's just an exclamation, exactly like it is in our language. It's when you don't know what else to say and you just want to express your great discomfort or your great excitement, your, your great pleasure. It's just the word, Oh. And, you know, look how it says here. It's going to sweep on into Judah. This army is going to overflow and pass on. It's, it's going to conquer even more than us. It's going to conquer us right up to the neck. Its outspread wings are going to fill the breath of the land. Oh, God with us. It's a lament because this is a horrible thing. And then verse 10 comes and it says, yeah, go ahead, make your plans, make your treaties, make your deals, trust in the worldly powers, but it's going to come to nothing. It'll not stand because why? Because God is with us. Emmanuel, it's not going to stand. God knows what he's doing. God is working. God is active in the world. And that 
turns us then to how this applies to us because this is so critical to understand what is happening here that Emmanuel uh, applies to us. Let's take a look at some of the notes here and see if we can unpack this for you. We sing of Emmanuel. We sing even one of my favorite songs, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, at Christmas time. It's a proper celebration of God fulfilling all covenant promises, to make all the wrongs right, to put an end to sin, to establish justice over all the earth. Isaiah talks a great deal about that. But think about the times that we live in. Indeed, the times that have been here and there around the earth through all the ages. Times are not much different. There's still wars. There's famines. There's corruption. There's godlessness. There's violence. There's immorality of all kinds around us. And right into all that breaks Emmanuel. Into the chaos steps Jesus Christ to offer himself as a sacrifice. He stepped in quietly, but by the time he stepped out, it changed the world. He offered himself as the sacrifice for sin. And thus the process began of putting all things under his feet. That is God with us. Emmanuel to judge and to save to condemn, to chastise, but to purify his holy remnant. For many, Emmanuel means destruction, but for many, it means salvation. For everyone, it means pain and difficulty as of childbirth, as it's described in the scripture. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is good news because what it means is that God is working in the world. And so many people are so ready to point a finger at God, to accuse him of evil, to saying, if you're so great, why are there bad things? But they don't see the big picture. They don't see the long term like God sees it. God is living and active. He's working in the world right now to put an end to all such terrible things. And he's doing it by being with us, by being Emmanuel, by being imminent and relevant to what's going on in the world all the time. The coming of Jesus presents to us his presence to conquer by the righteous judgment and to save by abounding grace. God is with us to save and to conquer. And the question that we ought to have for ourselves is which side are we on? When we hear Emmanuel, do we rejoice or do we fear? Oh, Emmanuel. See, God is involved in the world. He is actively whistling for the fly to come judge for one nation against another. He's moving world history to the benefit of his people and the spread of his gospel. He is turning away the enemy that would devour us. He's conquering every world power. Oh, Emmanuel. He is establishing righteousness over all the earth, purifying his people, placing into the earth those guided by the Spirit of God with a ministry of reconciliation. Oh, Emmanuel. This also teaches us about our Savior, that he can sympathize with us. 
that Emmanuel means and as he came and as he lived as a child and grew and was rejected by people and tempted in the wilderness by Satan, that he is one that can sympathize with our weaknesses and our difficulties. Therefore, he can represent us on the cross and in the intercession he makes before God. Therefore, he can lead us as one who understands our condition even better than we do. And therefore, he can save us because he is God and he is God with us. That's Emmanuel. My encouragement to you is, is do not trust the things of this world as Judah did. It will come to nothing. Drink from the calm waters of Shiloh. See, today, God is telling you a sign has been given. Every time you see a bow, every time you see a gift, every time you hear a carol, every time you see lights on a house, these are all the sign of Emmanuel, God with us, the light who came into the world, the gift given by God. And every time you see all of those things, it's as if you are standing with Isaiah by the pool of Shiloh. And that God is telling you, look, I'm there, and I'm there to judge, but I'm there to save won't you be saved? Or are you going to turn from me and ignore the sign and trust in the ways of this world to trust in your own good works to save you or to trust that none of this is true and to bury your head in the sand as it were, to, to cover your ears against all the singing carols of Emmanuel, to hide your eyes and shield your eyes from the lights that people put up in celebration, from the gifts that they give to one another? Will you scorn it all? to keep what little you have in this world, that which is temporary? Or will you heed the sign? Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We praise you for working and being active in the world. We thank you for this sign. We thank you for the plan of Christ. We thank you for your servant Isaiah. And yes, we even thank you for King Ahaz, who stood as a negative example. But nevertheless, you recorded his actions so we would benefit and we would have the opportunity laid out before us to see this great sign and to understand this great message that you are living and active and guiding the affairs of this world to an end, Lord, an end without suffering a time without death or difficulty or sin, even in ourselves, and that you have entered in to make a difference and you have entered in to win the victory on our behalf, Lord, to give rest to the weary, to take the burdens of sin upon Jesus on the cross. Let us, Lord, heed this message and then be greatly encouraged at every sign that we see of the holiday season and everything we read in the book of Isaiah as we continue our study, that we see that you are active and you are working to this very day to bring about a great and wonderful and glorious end for all who will call upon your name for salvation. 
We thank you, Lord, for doing this. It is a wonderful thing. And we pray that you receive all glory and honor for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you have found this helpful as it has been helpful, certainly, to me. Remember, he can sympathize, he can represent, he can lead you. So do not refuse the living water of Jesus Christ. If you have questions about these things or would like to contact us, you can contact us at uh, whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. Email me, whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. You can find more sermons online at sermonaudio.com. And you can certainly visit our website at whitesrun.org. I invite you to do so. I invite you to learn along with us as we are learning through this marvelous book. God bless you.